Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Friday, July 29th, 2022. Thank you for joining me. This is the last show of the week. I will be back writing and recording on Sunday night to get you guys a show for Monday morning to catch you up on all the weekend news. But for now, we have a lot of stuff to go over for today. The top story is a British official warned on Thursday that there is a greater risk of nuclear war today than there was during the Cold War due to a lack of communication. Now, this is from British National Security Advisor Stephen Lovegrove. And the reason why I wanted to highlight this is because, you know, what he's saying is true. And it seems there's such a high risk of nuclear war right now with the U.S. funding this war right on Russia's border and sharing intelligence with Ukraine so they can attack Russian forces and just being so involved in this war, um, you know, it really risks a direct war between the U.S. and Russia, which everybody knows could quickly turn nuclear. Um, So, and I haven't seen many Western officials acknowledge this. We've seen these warnings from Russia, but when it comes to the U.S. and its NATO allies, it seems like they're ignoring this threat and they're not factoring it into their calculations here. Um, So this guy Lovegrove said, quote, the Cold War's two monolithic blocks of the USSR and NATO were able to reach a shared understanding of doctrine that is today absent, end quote. He said that during the Cold War, there was an understanding of of the Soviet doctrine and capabilities because they kept more negotiation channels open. He said, quote, this gave us both a higher level of confidence that we would not miscalculate our way into nuclear war, end quote. He said today that we don't have the same foundations, Um, So one thing that's really troubling about today is that there's only one nuclear arms control treaty left between the U.S. and Russia, the New START, which limits the deployment of nuclear warheads, bombers, submarines, and missiles. Now, since Russia invaded Ukraine, the U.S. has abandoned diplomacy with Moscow, um, except now we've seen Blinken say he's going to speak with the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, but the conversation is going to be focused on a prisoner swap. And he said it's not going to be a negotiation on Ukraine. So it seems like still there's no effort to seek a diplomatic solution to this war. And it's just all about pumping weapons to fuel the conflict. And U.S. officials have said that they can't imagine negotiating a replacement of New START before it expires in 2026. That I linked to an article I wrote last month, a a U.S. official told the New York Times that it's impossible to imagine them negotiating a replacement of New START, which is pretty alarming. Um, Biden and Putin agreed to extend New START for five years right as Biden got into office. It was due to expire in February 2021, and Biden worked quick to extend it, so it kind of gave me some hope. I thought, okay, we're going to have tensions over Ukraine with Russia, but at least there's going to be nuclear arms control and there and nuclear arms control talks, but that's all over with now. The U.S. and Russia were involved in strategic dialogue on new, you know nuclear arms control and other similar issues, but those have ended since the war started. Russia says that they're willing to resume them, but the U.S. has said that they're not. So who knows when those talks could restart. Um, and also when it comes to China, China's kind of the big new boogeyman that you see a lot of stories about their nuclear arsenal 
But it right now it's vastly smaller than what the U.S. and Russia have. Current estimates put Beijing's arsenal at around 350 warheads, while the U.S. has 5,550 and Russia has about 6,200. During the Trump administration, the U.S. tried to get Beijing to take part in trilateral arms control talks with Moscow and Washington, but China has little interest in such talks while its arsenal is so much smaller. So if the U.S. was serious about getting China on board with arms control treaties, they would have to work with Russia to significantly dismantle, reduce their stockpiles, and get rid of a lot of nukes. That's what it would take. Uh, But unfortunately, we're not going to see that. And one of the reasons why we're not going to see that is because the U.S. has this $1.5 trillion plan to modernize its nuclear arsenal. There's a lot of money to be made in keeping tensions with China and Russia high. So that's the direction that we're headed. Instead of working to get rid of nuclear weapons, we are the U.S. is is planning to spend much more money on them and make a lot of people um, in Washington uh, happy with that. Um, And I mentioned here, which I said already, is that the, the risk is higher also because the U.S. is funding this war on Russia's border and is also stoking tensions with China by deploying more military forces in the South China Sea and increasing support for Taiwan, which we have a lot of China, Taiwan stuff to get into. Uh, But the next one is still Russia. The Senate passed a resolution calling for Russia to be labeled as a state sponsor of terror. Uh, They passed this resolution on Wednesday. It's non-binding, but it calls on Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who has the power to make this designation to to make it. Uh, it passed by a, a unanimous voice vote. There's strong. There's a strong bipartisan consensus to add Russia to this list. A similar resolution has been introduced in the House and Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She's been pressing Biden to make the designation, um, not Biden, Blinken, to, to make the designation. So really, I mean, the whole state-sponsored terror thing is a joke uh, when you think about all the groups that the U.S. and its allies, Saudi Arabia fund. Um, and they turn around and accuse other countries of supporting terrorism. And I mean, some of the countries that are designated as state sponsors of terror right now, it's Cuba, North Korea, Iran, and Syria. I mean, how do they justify still having Cuba on there? Well, actually the Obama lifted, took Cuba off the list and then the Trump administration put them back on as one of their last foreign policy moves. But so it, I have a feeling that this designation is going to happen because there's so much bipartisan support for it. What it does is expand sanctions on the country that gets designated. But since Russia is under so many sanctions, it's going to have very little impact on Moscow. But what it symbolizes, what I've mentioned before, is that it really shows that relations between the U.S. and Russia are not going to get back on track anytime soon. I mean, look at the list of countries that are designated. You can't see us opening up with North Korea or Cuba or Syria or Iran anytime soon. Um, And it would be really hard for a future administration to reverse the designation. There would be a lot of pressure on them not to do so unless things really, really change in Washington, which I don't see uh, happening anytime soon. So the next one here, now we're getting into China. Biden held a two-hour call with Chinese President Xi Jinping, uh, which is good. Talks are good, but it doesn't seem like they really got anywhere. They delivered warnings uh, on Taiwan, and she told Biden that the U.S. shouldn't play with fire over the issue. He said, quote, 
this is according to the Chinese embassy in Washington. She, uh, she told Biden, quote, those who play with fire, fire will perish by it. It is hoped that the U.S. will be clear-eyed about this issue, end quote. According to a White House readout of the call, Biden told Xi that U.S. policy, quote, has not changed and that the United States strongly opposes unilateral efforts to change the status quo or undermine peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, quote, end quote. Um, so despite the warnings, the two leaders agreed to hold a face-to-face -face meeting, according to a senior Biden administration official that briefed reporters after the call. Um, so that, uh, it sounds like they're going to set up a face-to-face -face meeting. It'll be the first time they meet face-to-face -face since Biden came into office. This was the fifth call that they held. Um, so they have been talking, but it just doesn't seem like it's a sincere effort at all by Biden to really reduce tensions with China. Because at the same time, we hear today that there's a, the USS Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier and its strike group are sailing around the South China Sea. and you know, the presence of U.S. aircraft carriers in the South China Sea used to be pretty rare, but in the past few years, it's been pretty regular um, as we've really seen the U.S. put more focus on this region. And these simmering tensions over Taiwan, they really demonstrate the state of U.S.-China relations, which are at their lowest point since Washington and Beijing formally established relations in 1979. We've seen Biden make clear that he views China as a rival. He's previously said that the U.S. and China are in a competition to win the 21st century. Um, so it's clear we're taking the U.S. is taking a hostile approach with China, which um, she has warned against in, in the call. You see Chinese officials warn against this a lot, that we don't have to be rivals. Um, so the next one here. Nancy Pelosi is leading a con congressional delegation to Asia that is set to depart on Friday, but it's still not clear if she will make a, a stop in Taiwan. Sources told NBC News that the, that the delegation will stop in Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, and Singapore. Taiwan is listed on the itinerary as tentative. So far, Pelosi and her advisors have declined to confirm if she's planning to visit Taiwan. We, there was reports that she is. And then... On Wednesday, Rep. Michael McCall said that Pelosi invited him to join her in Taiwan, signaling that she still plans to go despite the risk of sparking a major crisis across the Taiwan Strait. So that's the analysis from the Biden administration that they think this trip could spark a crisis across the Taiwan Strait. But they're playing it. They're insisting that it's still up to Pelosi whether or not she it's, it's her decision to go which I think if Biden, you know, really cared, he could pressure her not to go. I mean, if they really think it's this much of a risk, which I believe it is. And we saw Chinese military analysts, they warned the South China Morning Post that Pelosi visiting Taiwan could spark a conflict between the U.S. and China. Um, and they, their reasoning is that um, Pelosi will be the first House Speaker to make the trip since 1997, since Newt Gingrich made it during the Clinton administration. And their reasoning is that today China's military is much stronger than it was in 97 and that they're not just going to sit back and um, kind of take it this time. And we see the U.S. military is preparing for it. Uh, so it's just very, 
very dangerous, completely needless. She's not going to accomplish anything there. All it is is a provocation, and we're seeing a lot of bipartisan support for it. Um, so the next one here, Japanese lawmakers make rare visit to Taiwan to discuss potential conflict. So this is another sign of the tensions in the region that you have a group of Japanese lawmakers um, go meet with Tai Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen and talk about preparing for war in the region. Um, and this, the delegation included some former Japanese defense ministers, and one said, uh, Shigeri Ishiba, he said, quote, we need to think about we need to think ahead about what kind of situations could happen, what kind of laws and agreements we should prepare, and what kind of armaments we should we could use, end quote. Um, so talking about what kind of weapons and stuff that should be used in this potential conflict, this is pretty uh, serious stuff that's going on uh, that they're talking about. Um, so China's stance, you know, as we're talking about this risk of war with over Taiwan. China's stance is that it seeks peaceful reunification with Taiwan, but it has warned repeatedly that the issue is a red line and that if the U.S. supports the island's independence forces, as they call them, it will lead to war. They're saying this. They're saying, don't do this. Just don't go down this road, but we keep pushing it. Um, and Japan is, is essential to the U.S.'s plans to boost alliances in the region to encircle China, and Washington is encouraging Tokyo to expand its military um, that has been technically pacifist since the end of World War II. They're not supposed to have capabilities to attack other countries, but they're working on getting those capabilities. Shinzo Abe, the former prime minister who was assassinated recently, who was killed recently, uh, he really got this started. Um, he was prime minister for eight years, and he really put, set Japan on this path to um, build up its military. And we've seen them since sign unprecedented deals, military packs with Australia, um, with the UK. I mean, before that, it was just the, the US was really Japan's only military partner and the only country that could have a military presence in Japan. So now we talk about this. We talk about a war with, over Taiwan erupting in Asia. And who's going to bear the brunt of it um, if something really breaks out there? Well, it's going to be the US's allies in the region. It's going to be Japan where there's... Uh, 50,000 U.S. troops stationed, and it's going to be South Korea. They're the ones that are really going to feel the, feel the pain if, if a war breaks out. Um, so that's another thing that I had a link to another report from the South China Morning Post. You know, I, I use them a lot because they're pretty one of the best uh, outlets, um, Asian outlets covering this stuff, and they have a lot of good analysts that they quote. Um, Okay, so the next one, the House passed the massive $280 billion spending bill that is meant to counter China. The House passed it on Thursday. This is a day after the Senate passed it. This is the bill that includes about $52 billion to subsidize domestic chip semiconductor manufacturing. And then it has about $200 billion for vague science, scientific research that's going to go to federal agencies. It's going to be spent over the next five years. It's just an insane amount of money. Um, but it's meant to compete with China. This is what everything is about China now. And th that's how they're justifying this. Um, we saw Chuck Schumer, you know, say, we got to do this or China's going to take over the world, pretty much is what he said. He said that they're going to reshape the world in their authoritarian image. So it's 
passed through both both chambers. It passed in the House in a vote of 243 to 187. No Democrats voted against it, and 24 Republicans voted in favor. So it's now heading to Biden's desk. He could potentially sign it on Friday. I think that's what people are expecting. Uh, so the next one here, we got a couple of Syria stories from Jason Ditz. Um, there was some fighting in Sueda in southern Syria, which is an area that um, th- there wasn't much fighting in during the war in Syria. Um, but we saw some clashes there between pro-government fighters and and other fighters. At least 17 were killed, according to these reports. Um, it's not really clear what happened, what sparked the fighting, um, but it's just something to keep an eye on. Um, Because when things heat up in Syria, the U.S. usually likes to get involved. Um, The U.S. is in Syria, (laughs) occupying the eastern portion of the country. Um, Next one here, more Syria. They're also facing an incursion, a Turkish incursion in the north. They are threatening uh, to invade, to fight the Kurdish forces. And there was a Turkish drone strike in the region uh, that killed four people, four Kurdish uh, fighters on Thursday morning. Um, So again, you know, there's always kind of this threat that Turkey's going to go into this area again and, or push in more than they, than they have. Um, So it's just a threat on the horizon. And it's, you know, these are the Kurds that the U S is funding, that the U S is backing. And then you see Turkey, a NATO ally is always threatening to um, fight them. You know, you talk about entangling alliances, uh, but um, what's interesting, though, is that the Kurdish SDF that the U.S. backs, they always say if whenever the U.S. says they might pull out when Trump said he was going to withdraw from Syria, they said it again recently that, oh, we could always just, uh, you know, work with the Syrian government against so we don't have to worry about Turkey invading, working with Assad. That's always an option for us. I remember they said once when Trump said he was going to pull out. Um, so. It's just interesting because whenever, when the the two times Trump said he was going to pull out, the whole media narrative was, oh, we're just going to abandon the Kurds to be killed by Turkey. Ah, oh, the Kurds, the Kurds. But the Kurds are saying, uh, yeah, we could uh, we could turn to Damascus. Really, that's an option for them. And you know, but it's still the excuse to stay in the country is to is to back them against ISIS, which is. Uh, you know, the Syrian government is the most effective anti-ISIS force right now in Syria. Uh, it's one of the most. Uh, so the next one here, this is from Nick Terse at The Intercept. The U.S. played a secret role in Nigerian attack that killed more than 160 civilians. So this is a 2017 bombing of a displaced persons camp. Um, it was termed a U.S.-Nigerian operation, according to a secret document that was obtained by the intercept. So this is a really uh, thorough report about the, this strike that the Nigerian Air Force carried out. It looks like the U.S. was involved um, through intelligence intelligence sharing, but they're called, you know, it was referred to, there was an investigation into it by the U.S., and it was referred to as U.S.-Nigerian operation. Um, so people should check that out. He is one of the best people on the African special ops stuff that just nobody else covers that we never hear about. I mean, even though this is in The Intercept, which is a pretty big outlet, you know, I haven't seen it picked up anywhere else. It's just something people don't really want to 
uh, talk about. Uh, so the last news story for the day, a U.S. official says integrated Arab-Israeli missile defense st- systems are still just an idea. So maybe this is the good news for the day. Uh, we've been hearing about this Arab-Israeli alliance that Israel is hoping to form against Iran. We saw Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz before Biden went to the Middle East. He revealed that Israel was working to build this alliance with a focus on integrated air defense systems. Gantz said that it's kind of already, they've already, it's already formed, but that seemed not, that seems like it wasn't true. Um, He kind of exaggerated the cooperation with these Arab countries, I think. Uh, And because Biden, when he attended a GCC summit in Saudi Arabia, in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, part of that summit was he was going to push for Arab cooperation in this Israeli alliance, a U.S.-backed Israeli-Arab alliance against Iran. But it doesn't look like he really gained much support for it, at least public support, Uh, besides the UAE and Bahrain, who recently normalized with Israel. uh, You know, we haven't seen the Saudis uh, or other countries in the region, you know, really get on board with this idea. Now you have Jordan. I've seen King Abdullah of Jordan. He said recently, oh, yeah, sign me up for a Middle East NATO. That sounds good. Um, but, you know, they've been opened up with Israel for a long time, and he really plays ball with the U.S. Um, but it just doesn't look like it's it's forming as quick as Israel is hoping. Uh, the official said, quote, it's an idea right now. There's no framework for it, but it was important for the president to raise the issue of better regional integrated air and missile defense, end quote. So while he was in the Middle East, we saw Saudi Arabia open its airspace to Israel under a deal that got them control of two Red Sea islands that were previously controlled by Egypt. The U.S. and Israel said this was a step towards normalization. Saudi Arabia came out and said, nope, not a step towards normalization. We're not going to normalize with Israel. Not going to happen. And they denied that they were involved in talks on this Arab-Israeli alliance. Now, still, though, that's public. I do actually, I think that they are eventually going to open up with Israel. It might take a while, but that does seem like it's the path that they're going on. Or even if that doesn't happen, there's been uh, instances of them cooperating militarily with Israel. They they openly held military drills. Um, the Saudi Arabia openly participated in U.S.-led military drills with Israel for the first time this year. So we see stuff like that. Um, which is a big deal. So I think we're eventually going down this path, unfortunately, of this, you know, Middle East NATO against uh, Iran. So, and this is big because this will kind of let Israel get its way and not get a return to the Iran deal um, and kind of just keep the U.S. hostile against Iran, I think, if they get this alliance. Because, you know, they could say, oh, we'll, we'll take care of Iran now that we have this great alliance. We, we won't need your help. And who knows what could happen from there. Uh, but that is it. That is the news for the day. We have some good viewpoints, as always. Um, and just to remind you again, this is the last show for the week. I'll be back Sunday night to give you a show for Monday morning. I hope everybody's been enjoying it. Um, I appreciate all the feedback. You can contact the show news at antiwar.com. You can support the show at antiwar.com slash donate. 